blessings to each one this morning. It's a privilege that we have to gather this way in the presence of God and in each other's presence. A time of fellowship, a time of encouragement, a time of, of challenging each other in the truths of the word and in the application of those truths in our lives for the glory of God. Appreciate that song we sang about channels that we can be, that God can use and flow through to his purposes. And I would, I would just suggest that you pray that God would allow me to be the channel today that you can receive a blessing from him and his word. You know, it's interesting to think about current events and the recent past election. One of the subjects that often came up is related to concerns that would possibly be addressed in the election if people voted properly was that we could improve the economy. The economy is on people's minds. There's, uh, you know, how far money will go is really something that's on people's minds. Everybody likes to get the best bang for their buck. Uh, they like to get, have the ab ability to have the power to achieve, uh, to main, to, uh, well, not just achieve, but to be able to amass sometimes things they need. And of course, when the economy isn't like it should be, then the money doesn't do as much, and so less is done and more disappointments. Well, I find it interesting in thinking as to where this message came from as, a, as it was developing over the past few weeks. Um, when, as, and I look back last Sunday... Brother John Lee was here, and, and he shared a message about spiritual bankruptcy, and he talked about money and, and uh, this, this thing of, of having the right focus on, on uh, earthly things. And then I noticed that uh, Brother Evan brought a message several weeks ago that had to do with having a proper perspective of our treasure. Where our treasure is, there's where our heart will be. It was in that message. Well, this morning I want to talk about, I want to talk about something very much along that line, but it will be a different message. But I want us to think about heaven's currency. Now, after the message last Sunday, I, I was inspired to tell John that he left something out or he didn't finish bringing something to our attention that I think could have fit. Not that I was reprimanding him or scolding him, but it was just something that came to me and I shared it with him. <clears throat> and that was that he talked about heaven's currency last week or the kingdom of God, the currency of the kingdom of God. And I got to thinking, what is that currency? How would you define it? What's the reality of it? By the time his message was finished, I had an idea of what it is. And I'm going to take that thought further here this morning. And so I want us to look at what heaven's currency is. But first I want to read a couple of verses before I tell you what it is. And you may begin to see it yourself from Scripture. In Matthew 13, verse 44, it says again, Jesus speaking to those who he was teaching, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, 
he hideth and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath and buyeth that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who, when he hath found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Then in Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold, tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, that thou, and that thou, the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eyesalve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Another verse yet. Several verses, actually, in Hebrews chapter 12. Beginning at verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endures such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye, being wearied and faint in your minds, ye have not resisted unto blood. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Jesus, who is the focus of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Now I'd like to go yet to John 15, 9. Verses 9 through 11. As the Father hath loved me, Jesus speaking, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Anyone, anybody want to give me a one-word definition of, the cur- of heaven's currency yet? I'll read further. John 16, 24. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. Another verse, Romans 15, 13. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost. Another verse, Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Anyone want to guess now? Joy. Joy. I found it interesting as I did a, a, a study of that. After, actually, last Sunday afternoon, after I told John that, I decided to follow it through a little bit. So I looked up all the a lot of the verses that had to, focused on joy, and it was interesting. It was uh, I had a whole page. Actually, I emailed it over to John. I wanted him to see it. <clears throat> now, it might be that we would classify things a little different, but I'm convinced that part of the, the currency system of, of God's heavenly currency, the, the currency of the kingdom of God, is joy. It's part of the package of that system. 
if you want to be able to fully function with abounding realities and spiritual realities, one thing must be present, and that is the joy of the Holy Spirit in your life. The challenge that came to me and comes to me is, how am I doing? How does that, How is that joy resonating in the reality of my purchasing power of spiritual blessings? Now, I want to be careful that I don't uh, lay this out as something that we generate or that we work for necessarily. But I'd rather force to think about it as the... the uh, the paycheck that we get for serving God. We don't really work for joy, but joy is actually a result of our coming to God, committing ourselves to God. Another way of maybe defining joy is commitment being re uh, co the, the realization or, or the, the uh, rewards of our commitment to God. The reward of that commitment True, truly sold out to God, surrendered to his will, and we receive the benefit of the joy, abundant joy. And so there's, a, there's another way I'm going to bring it to our attention later that we can evaluate how our, our joy is, is uh, permeating our life experience properly. But the question that I guess comes to me is, Am I experiencing the reality of the benefit of the dividends of heaven's realities that God has intended? I will be quick to say that I don't want us to think that if we aren't experiencing that bubbly, uh, joyful reality every moment of our life, that something's wrong with us. But there should be that that deep, settled com contentment in God that is could be classified as the joy that is, is ours to have. Now, we don't go spend joy. That's not the kind of currency I'm thinking about. But rather, I'm thinking about the kind of currency that is our bank account. It's, it's the reserve. It's, it's the, the, the knowing that we're that we're safely taken care of. We have that, that contentment. You see, one of the things about this world's currency, people tend to want to accumulate it because it gives them power. It gives them security. It gives them a certain sense of contentment. Oh, really? Well, actually, that's the idea, but Truth is, the more we have, the more we depend on that currency, the more un, more discontented we are. Now, I don't want to get on John's message for the evening, but I discovered when I realized what he was preaching that there may be some overlap here too. And so, I'd like to look at Hebrews chapter 12 again. We looked at the first four verses, or the three verses at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 through 4 talked about that because of the joy that was set before Jesus, he provided for us, for our salvation. 
There was, there was joy that he received. He had that deep, settled contentment that he was in the will of his Father by doing what he did to offer us salvation. And of course, he was, it says there in verse 2, he is the author and finisher of our faith. And it was the joy that was set before him that he was willing to pay the price necessary to make it possible for us to experience the salvation and then the ultimate joy that we receive when we claim that by faith. But let's go, let's go further in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 5. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For when thou art for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof are, whereof are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh who have corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure. But he, notice, he for our profit, for our profit, Oh, that means that we have a reward if we endure the chastening with a proper spirit, a proper attitude, surrender, submission to his will. And what is that? That ye might be partakers of his holiness. And wherever there is that, that realization of that righteous relationship with God, there will be that joy. There will be that profit that uh, part of the profit package is to have that contentment in the reality of our security in Christ. In Jude chapter 1, verse 24, it says this, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. You see how that all flows together? that steadfast in Christ's security that we can experience to the, to the glory of God. And there's, a total, uh, there's a, a total package reality that includes joy. Now I'm going to shift gears. Actually, maybe you should be praying for a miracle this morning because I'm... I'm sharing two messages with you this morning. I began on that message. Now, that was pretty quick for a message. But there was another message that we're, I've been working on that, that I felt like gloved, it dovetailed right in with this, and I wanted us to be able to put it together to see the whole picture of two messages. And so I want us to think about some... Um, Bible realities that help us understand why we have the basis for joy and the result of how that works out in our lives. And for that, I want us to look at two things. 
from Scripture to major aspects of God's Word and truth of God's Word that have been put there to help us to have the assurance of the, of the reality of God, to give us the authenticity, the sense of true, uh, the authenticity of the truth of God's Word as it presents us with these truths that we latch on to by faith. And that brings us to that fruition of God's righteousness in our life experience because we we have these things to base our faith on and it helps us to have the, uh, something to solidly commit to. There's two things I want us to think about. One is God has provided prophecy throughout Scripture and that pro- those prophecies help us to realize that what God said he meant and he brought it to reality as a proof of who he is and that he delivers on his promises. And then another aspect of truth that God has given to us is through the types. Types are another way that God reveals himself and says, this is what, this is what I'm talking about and this is the reality of what I've said and it all comes together and it proves that God is the God that he says he is. And so those are some of the basic foundations for our faith. First, I want to look at the types. And I want to entitle this the pitch for types. You know, often when somebody gives a pitch, it's a sales pitch. And some of you think of me as a salesman anyway. And and I'm going to try to sell this idea of types to you this morning. That's what it sounds like pitch the pitch for types or a pitch for types but actually it's a play on words because I want us to look at Noah's Ark Hebrews 11 7 by faith Noah being warned of God of things not seen yet as yet moved with fear prepared an ark to the saving of his house by the which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness which is by faith You see some basic biblical principles of truth there? By faith, Noah obeyed God, and in doing so, he condemned the world because the world doesn't obey God. And he became heir of righteousness, and we we do that too. When When we, by faith, accept and obey what God says, we begin to experience the righteousness of God in our lives. Now, another reference to this is in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, which sometimes were disobedient, talking about, I should have maybe included verse 19 there. When once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. Now this is bringing a type into focus, and this type, both of these verses, and this type is the, the ark, the Noah's ark, the ark of the flood. <clears throat> there are a lot of things we can learn from studying that reality about what the ark meant, what it, for, what it prophesied, what it uh, was in a type fashion to point to greater things in the future of God's covenant with man and, and God's dealing with man, offering salvation and so on. Just just quickly to understand what the ark was for, the world 
was drowning in destruction of wickedness. God decided to destroy that wickedness with a flood of water. And so the water is a type of the judgment that God brought, brought on sin in this situation. And by the way, just to help keep things relevant, the word of God is referred to as the water, the water of the word. And there are a number of different aspects of the word that water applies to, but judgment is one of them. The water of the word actually brings judgment on sin. Another one is it's the water of life. If we believe what's offered in salvation and we partake of that, that is the water of life that gives us life and so on. But in this situation, we're thinking about water as, a, as something that is coming as judgment on wickedness. Now, the ark was what made it possible for the human family to escape destruction and, and from uh, the water that was around. So the ark actually represents Jesus and his plan of salvation to us. Those who were in the ark by faith were saved from the destruction of the flood and judgment. Those of us who are in Christ are able and eligible to escape the judgment that the word proclaims on unrighteousness and actually what's coming in the future. And so when we're in Christ, we're in the ark. The ark of safety. Now there's something about that ark I want us to think about this morning. Something that is unusual, something that I didn't realize for a long time. But I discovered it some time ago, and it was very interesting to me. And I've done some study on it, and I won't be able to really delineate it all this morning for time's sake, unless you all really pray for a miracle that I can breeze through it and get it all said. In Genesis 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 14, we have God's command to, to Noah to build the ark. And this is what he told Noah, among other things, but this is kind of boil it right down to, to one verse. God told Noah, Make thee an ark of gopher wood, rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And so this ark needed to be built properly. It needed to be built according to standards of God. And one of those standards that God gave him was that it had to be lined with pitch on the inside and pitch on the outside. That was so that it would float, that it would do its job. It would fulfill its purpose. Without the pitch, the water would have came right through those boards and that thing wouldn't have lifted off the ground at all. It would have been part of the flood, destructive part of the flood destruction. But the pitch was what made it float. It made it work. It made it something that was worthy of saving those people. And so I did a little study on this word pitch. It has a type significance. And so this is where the pitch for types word came from. First of all, this word pitch, used twice in this verse, actually comes from two different words in the original, and I don't know if I should attempt to pronounce them. They're fairly easy to pronounce, so maybe I'll try. But kafar is the first pitch, and kofar is the second kind of pitch. And so if we look those up and try to sort it out, 
The pitch on the inside, it, well, first of all, it says pitch within. So that pitch was on the inside. That pitch was made out of a, a certain tree, a beth, bethnium tree or something like that. I don't know if I got that pronounced right. But it was made of, of this, this um, bayeth is the right word for that tree. <clears throat> but it, it was uh, kind of a tar-like substance like we think of tar and, and uh, some of those kind of substances. Very much what it was like. Although it had a, 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 a an aroma about it. it, it didn't. It had a turpentine smell. We, the kind of you, when you mess with tar, you kind of get that. But this had a camphorish uh, smell. If I understood, I say camphor. Is that maybe um, that's not quite the right word? <clears throat> but it it was kind of a deodorizing odor that it gave off. And that actually is, is the, uh, part of the description of this word. It carries that idea in that word. And some of the commentaries I read said that was on purpose because of the stench that was going to be in there from all those animals for all that time. And so God was actually being merciful to have him put the pitch in there to bring about some disinfectant uh, properties or at least help improve the air quality in, inside. But here's what's really interesting about that word. That word, and I'm going to just share a couple words that describe the meaning of that word in the original language. It says, um, first of all, it's a, it's to cover. That That is a part of the definition, to cover. And of course, that makes sense. You cover it with pitch. Um, to placate or cancel. To appease. To make atonement. To cleanse, disannul, forgive, be merciful, pacify, pardon, purge away, put off, reconcile. All those words are part of the definition of that original word, pitch. What's that all about? Actually, it's helping us understand that the, the type of the ark or the, the, the truths that relate to the type of the ark are pointing to salvation through Christ. Remember I mentioned that the ark is actually a type of Christ, that we find safety and security in Christ. Christ would not be able to offer us security and salvation, um, canceling our 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 curse of sin on our lives to allow us to experience the righteousness of God and bring us out safely on the other side wouldn't have happened without his atonement, without him dying. And this word is actually looking at that aspect of the future realities of this type being of Christ bringing salvation. Now, it says type with pitch within and the word within has some idea, uh, some things that come with it in terms of its original meaning. And this is one of them, or several of them. Uh, it has to do with family, with uh, being in, uh, within, uh, in a palace, inside. Uh, the word temple is actually involved there. It has the idea of, of a family that is being benefited by 
the realities of salvation. Now, I've got to move on. <clears throat> Looking at the pitch that was without, this was the kofer. It means properly to cover also, but it has the idea of a village, not a family, but a village. The, the larger spectrum of reality. In other words, inside is the reality of that salvation. On the outside is the, is the uh, invitation to that salvation. It's, it's providing the opportunity for salvation to the world that's outside. It's an invitation to come and to be part of this salvation. It also has the idea of uh, paying a price for redemption. And here's where camphor is actually, it is uh, there in that word as well. Some other words that actually uh, summarize the meaning of this in the original, uh, this kofir, is ransom, satisfaction, sum of money. They're very closely tied together and, and it makes, makes sense that they would, but there's a little bit different uh, perspective. The one is inside, the other has to do with what uh, the, the uh, atoning work of Christ offers the world on the outside. And it has, and, and the word without, it says, and, and put the pitch without. That word without has the idea of a wall, a division between, to separate uh, something outside of. And so it just, it's interesting how these words put together paint the picture of what makes Christ offering to us work in our behalf. It's his atonement, and, and as a family, we continue together as, as in, being in Christ. We have continual blessing of his atoning work working for us. We have the, the reality of having our sins forgiven and him paying the price to make it possible, um, satisfying the ransom on our behalf so we can have this relationship with God. And the pitch that was on the outside is, like I said, it's offering to the world the remedy for sin. And I have a number of verses here. I'm not going to read near all of them, but just, just for interest's sake, um, this same word was translated in different ways throughout Scripture. This word was used often, this word pitch, but it was translated differently. And here's some of the ways, the, the ways it was translated. Uh, the kafir, or the, the, the pitch from inside, was translated in Genesis 32.20 when Joseph, I mean Jacob, was coming to meet his brother Esau, he sent a, a head, a present before him. And it says, I will appease my brother. And that would that was the same word used as pitch about the ark. I will appease. It was an atonement, so to speak. He was trying to, to uh, send something ahead that would pay a price for, for peace. Also in Exodus 30, verse 10, it says, And Aaron shall make an atonement upon the horns of of the altar in a once in a year with the blood of a sin offering of atonements. Once in the year shall he make atonement. And these both both of these words atonement come from that same word that was used for pitch on the inside of the ark. 
Now, for the pitch that was on the outside of the ark, I'll read a verse or two there. The same word there was used other places in Scripture. In Numbers 35, 32, it says, And ye shall take no satisfaction for him that is fled to the city of refuge. The word satisfaction. Uh, in Job 36, 18, Because there is wrath, beware, lest he take thee away with his stroke, with his stroke, then a great ransom cannot deliver thee. And I, I'm not looking into the context there, but it's just the word ransom is used. In uh, Psalm 47, 49, 7, it says, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God ransom for him. And that's that same word, a pitch on the outside. Now, <clears throat> I want us to look a little bit at, and there's a lot more that could be said here. Um, I didn't give you all the definitions or make the applications. I'd like to look at the other uh, idea of, of what we uh, can look at in Scripture to have this confidence in God, and that is prophecy, the pitch for prophecy. And I'd go to Isaiah 53 for this, and basically I do this because it reiterates what the ark message was, only it's through prophecy this time. In Isaiah 53, 1, I'm going to begin reading there, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want to read down through verse 4. Who hath, who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of the dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when ye shall see him, there is no beauty that ye shall desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did not esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. I'd like just to pause there. In this prophecy, I think sometimes we get off track a little bit or our understanding here may be skewed just a little bit. There's a word that's used twice that I, I believe is good if we understand more properly and that is the word esteem. It talks about what Jesus went through and his sorrows being rejected and so on. It says, and we esteemed him not. That word has different meanings. It has the idea of to uh, give consideration, to assign um, value. And what it's saying there, I believe, is that we didn't give Jesus, what it's saying is that majority of mankind does not esteem him for what he did for them. He does, they do not as, um, assign him the value that he's worthy of. That's how I would understand and interpret that esteem. But the next esteem is, is basically the same word, but has a different connotation. It says, surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did not esteem him. I'm sorry, the word not is not in there. That's taken out. That makes this different. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. And here it has the idea of those looked on Jesus as though he was punished by God. 
And so somehow that negated the, the gift that he was giving us. The word esteem also has the idea of to fabricate, to plot, or to contrive. And I believe that's what this word would be saying, that, that it's saying that men contrived to understand or believe that God was punishing and bringing this judgment on Jesus for our sins. Actually, if we go further in this passage, we'll notice that in the last part it says, he hath poured out his soul unto death. He bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And I don't have time to really sort it all out, but I want us to get the picture that Jesus gave himself. He, he bore our sins. He bore our sorrows. In other words, because of the reality of the condition of mankind, he went through this, this situation in our behalf. Another, another um, way to explain that was uh, I noticed that the, the idea of to offer up is the same word as to bear. And I, I looked in uh, the Old Testament and also in the New Testament and, and saw that co correlation, that he, he carried our sin. He didn't take them on and become a sinner, as some would indicate. Had he done that, his blood would not have been pure. Without sin, you see, the only reason he he could die for our sins was because God withheld His protection that was worth that He was worthy of and due because He was not bound to the curse of sin. Jesus could not die on earth without Him giving up His life because the curse of sin was death, and He did not have sin. There was there was no reason for death in His life. And so he was not subject to death, the same as sinful men. And so God had many times spared his life when it looked like death was, was imminent, that circumstances were closing on in him, on him. There were those who wanted him dead, but he would escape. He would go his way. They did not have the power to bring death to him, his experience. Although they went through the actions of putting him to death and were responsible for those actions, Scripture says that he gave his life. There on the cross, he finally uh, prayed his father. He says, I commend my spirit into, to, to you, and I, that's my words. But he, he surrendered himself, he gave himself, because he was not subject to death. <clears throat> and so he did not experience the curse of death on, his, on himself as some would indicate. Rather, he gave his life, death, as a ransom to pay the ransom. And that ransom was, was to uh, answer the need for God to be just and to bring, to bring death on sin. Now, some say that he paid the full price of our curse. But you know what the curse is? The curse was separation from God. That's what death means, separation. But the curse of sin was separation from God physically, separation from God spiritually, separation from God eternally. That was the full extent of the curse. And if Jesus would have been uh, 
experienced what's called the second death or the eternal death, then he wouldn't have had any opportunity to have been reconciled to God and, and to us because that's the curse, is separation from God forever, conclusively, at the end. He did not pay that price. <clears throat> the price he paid was giving his physical life to answer the curse on man. Had he taken our sins, like I said, then his blood would have been tainted with sin and he would have been uh, put, died in all three areas without salvation. And if his blood wouldn't have been pure, he couldn't have brought salvation to himself or any of us. <clears throat> okay, I want us to move on. In Hebrews 9, 26, it says, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, For even here, hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was God found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously, who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should, know, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls." And so the, the provision was provided for us. And it's by faith that we accept that provision. And when we do, we acknowledge our dependency on, on his provision for, of atonement for our souls. So when we accept that, we repent of our sins. We acknowledge our need. And we reach out for the lordship of Christ in our lives. That then we can experience the full realities of the provisions that have been made through that salvation. <clears throat> I'd like to notice several verses here that put together the responding results of that decision when we accept Christ, when we uh, go through that procedure of surrendering our lives, dying to self, giving him lordship, becoming obedient to him, there are a number of things that happen. But one of those things I want us to think about is what I brought to our attention at the beginning. We receive the, king, the currency of the kingdom of God. We receive joy and peace within our souls when we properly deal with sin. I'd like to notice several verses that have uh, this in focus. Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 says, But I will sacrifice unto the Lord with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 4 15 it says, For all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the Redound to the glory of God. And in 2 Corinthians 9.11 it says, Being enriched 
in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth us, causeth through us thanksgiving to God. Now I bring these verses to our attention to just help focus on the reality of, of the results of accepting that salvation is joy. But the reality or, or the indicator or the reality of that joy in our life is our response in thanksgiving. A person that is truly experiencing that deep, settled joy, that contentment in Christ, will be a thankful person. So if you're, if you're wondering, how am I doing? Uh, think about how thankful you've been. Think about how much you, you praise God for what he's done for you. If that's happening, that's an outworking of the joy that's deep settled in your heart. You know, there's a difference between joy and happiness. The world says you can pursue happiness and you can achieve it. It's yours to be had. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this deep, settled contentment being in Christ, that in the ark, safe in Jesus. Now, I'd like to, in summary, bring something to our attention that uh, was shared at the Harry Argo um, session. Many of you were there. Sorry, some of you that were there couldn't hear everything. But there was one thing that he did kind of as a summary. As a, He said, now, don't for, if you don't forget, remember anything else, remember this. And I think it's very important. I want, to, I want to bring it back to us because I think it fits right here. And that is the, that the triangle that he put on the board and explained. And first of all, I would say this, that to be able to experience the realities that God has provided for us to live in that righteous walk that he asks us to and, and promises that we will if we exercise faith in Christ. For, for that to happen, we have to have a proper concept of who God is. A.W. Tozer says, it that, says that. And he, it's not because he said it, but he, have, he realized the truth and stated it. And that is that we, our life, our Christian life will be no better than our concept of God. Why is it necessary that we read our, our Bibles, that we pray, that we seek God? It's to know him, to understand who he is, to get that sense of the spiritual reality of God in our life and having that proper concept of him. Then we can move and operate in this realm of salvation that he's provided properly. And it will function right. And if it functions right, we'll experience the fullness of joy. Now, having said that, having the proper concept of God, our response is commitment to his system of truth. And when we, when we submit to that system of truth, then we are, we are signing up, so to speak, for God's program. And I might say, in part of that program is his currency. We'll experience joy in the process. But if we properly commit ourselves to the system of truth of being sold out, then something will happen. There will be a, a value system established that reflects the character of God. Now, that's, that's our mental assessment and appraisal and correlation of, of where we come out, our convictions and so on, will line up with the character of God. 
But there's something else that will demonstrate that that's true and that's happening, and that is our behavior, the, the practice of the principles of God. And there, here's where I would put obedience plays itself out. And he said that if any one of these three becomes lacking, the other two will, will dilute themselves to match. In other words, if you're not conducting yourself in proper uh, adherence to the character of God, if you're not living your life properly, if you're allowing things to go on in your life that don't please God, your value system will be lowered and your commitment to God will fall off. Or if you somehow are convinced that, that the value system of God, you've got it too high and you just decide to lower it, your, your practice, your behavior will match that. And of course, that will reflect a lack of commitment to God and so on. I thought that was very, very well stated. And I've, I put it into three different cat, uh, words so you can take this with you a little easier. First of all is commitment, of course, to God. The next one is character, the value system. And the next is conduct or behavior. So we need these three to make the triangle commitment, character, and conduct. And we can evaluate any one of those. See where we are. But my proposal is this morning that the proper balance of this system will result in a life of joy and peace. The proper balance generated by the grace of God or the power to get it done properly as a result of our faith in, in the God that we uh, reach out to serve. <clears throat> and of course, the reality of uh, uh, and the results of all that the result of this reality will be the manifestation of a thankful heart. So I've given you something to use this morning as a, as a gauge to check your, your spiritual pocketbook. How much joy are you experiencing? That's, that's, the, that's the currency. And if you want to know what the count balance is, check your thankfulness. Let's have a song. <clears throat>